Amen. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. As you're turning there, there are so many days in my life that I look back on and see them having changed the entire course of my life. Planting this church, for instance, October 20th, 2013, that forever changed my life. This is one of the greatest privileges of my entire life, to be able to be the pastor at this church, change the course of my life forever. Looking at each of my kids when they were born, I knew forever my life would be changed as each of them came into the world. Watching my son being wheeled into the OR for heart surgery, I knew that that moment was going to change my life. No matter what happened, that would forever cement in my life, for all of my life, the power of God on display. Marrying the love of my life, marrying my best friend, I knew that would change my life for the better every day. And I wish, I wish that I would have been born married. I wish that I would have been married to her from the moment that I was alive. Obviously, the greatest day of my life that changed my life forever was the day that I was saved by Jesus Christ, forever changing not only my life here, but also the next life, forever in eternity. All these are important days, massively meaningful days that have changed my life. But this morning, we are going to look at the most important day in all of human history, and that is not an overstatement. I know that I tend to speak in hyperbole, but this is not a hyperbole. What we will be looking at this morning is the most important day in all of human history. We've been looking at the most important week in all of human history, and now we will look at the greatest day of that week, the day that Christ was raised from the dead. This is the single most important day in all of human history. This is the day upon which all other days stand or fall. This is the day that determines our eternal destiny. So let's read Matthew 28, verses 1 through 9, and then we will dive into this most blessed of all days and rejoice in the resurrection of Christ. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here because he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is going, he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I've told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran and reported it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. Father, we want to do that this morning. 
Jesus is not physically here where we can take hold of his physical feet, but his presence is here through his spirit and through his omnipresence. And God, we want to take hold of him. We want to take hold of him as we study him in the word, that we would see who he is and what he has done so clearly on display for us. And as we look at it, we would take hold of him with our hearts, with our minds, with our affections, that we would not remain unaffected by the reality of what Christ accomplished when he rose from the dead. This changes everything. This changes our greatest trials. This changes the pain that we go through. This changes every ounce of suffering that we experience. This changes the way that we look at death. This changes the way we look at what happens after we die. This changes everything. And so, Father, I pray that you would be pleased to show us Christ so so that we could grab hold of him and worship him this morning. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Sunday, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your word. We pray in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior. Amen. Well, we come to the eighth day of the Passion Week. The Passion Week is an eight-day week, praise the Lord. It is not seven days. It doesn't end on Saturday with Jesus remaining in the tomb. He comes out of the tomb. So, for one last time, let's review all the way up until this precious day, Resurrection Sunday. Let's start with the triumphal entry. Jesus uh, makes the triumphal entry happen by going around the Sea of Galilee. Remember, he takes the long way around instead of going from Ephraim to Jerusalem, a couple of short miles. He goes around the long way, gets the crowd, makes the crowd go in ahead of him, stays the night in Bethany on Friday and Saturday, rides in triumphal entry on Sunday. Monday, what two things happen on Monday? What are they? He curses the fig tree as he walks into Jerusalem from Bethany with his disciples, and then he goes and he cleanses the temple. He takes over the temple, he cleanses it. Then he leaves Tuesday. What does he do? He teaches on the lesson of the fig tree, and then he goes into the temple and he teaches again. Four questions are asked of him by the religious leaders. The Sadducees ask the first one. What's the first question? Who gave you the authority to do these things? What are these things? Cleansing the temple. Who gave you the authority to cleanse the temple? Who allowed you to do that? Jesus answers, I'll ask you a question. Uh, Was John the Baptist made famous by God sending him as a legitimate prophet or by men just thinking he's a prophet, but he's not? They say, we can't answer that. He says, well, neither will I answer you. Second question by the Pharisees. Very good question. What is it? Uh, Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Great question to trap Jesus because they want, the crowds want uh, Messiah to overthrow Rome. And since uh, they plan on Jesus being that Messiah, And the religious leaders want to get the crowds on their side. They want to make Jesus out to look like a fool. So they say, hey, do we have to pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus says, uh, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. They're amazed at this statement. And uh, the crowds uh, continue to love Jesus more and pull away from the religious leaders. Third question by the Sadducees, a very funny one. Who is this woman married to? She's married seven different times. Who is she married to in the resurrection? Jesus says, you are mistaken. There is no marriage in the resurrection as far as humans to humans. We are married uh, to Christ, right? The bride of Christ is married to Christ in heaven. But we aren't married to each other. We're like the angels. And then uh, the beauty of what uh, Jesus then goes on to say is, you're also greatly mistaken about the resurrection, about the afterlife. There is an afterlife, and he proves that. How does he prove it? Do you remember? 
the burning bush story, by the tense of the verb. You remember, by the tense of the verb, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was their God. This came uh, perfectly illustrated to me as I was watching The Lion King with my children last night. When uh, Simba says, you knew my father? And Rafiki says, correction, I know your father. He knows the tense of the verb matters, not new, as if he's dead, but no, he's very much alive. So once again, stumped, the Sadducees run away with their tails between their legs. And then the fourth question, a genuine question, different question that is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Tuesday, he finishes by going out of the temple to the Mount of Olives. All of that discourse goes back to Bethany. Wednesday, what's Wednesday called? Silent day. Uh, that's because the Bible is silent about it, but we know that things are happening. Two main things are happening. What are they? Jesus is planning where the upper room is going to be, where the celebration of Passover is going to take place. Judas is planning with the religious leaders how he's going to get them uh, ready and prepared to arrest Jesus. Thursday, you have the Passover celebration. They go into the Garden of Gethsemane. Friday, you have the different uh, trials after the arrest of Christ. Six different trials, three, uh, three Jewish, three Roman. The three Jewish trials before Annas, the ex-high priest, before Caiaphas, the high priest, and then before the whole Sanhedrin. And then they take him to Pilate, and then it goes Pilate, Herod Antipas, Pilate. Pilate wants Jesus to be delivered five times, explicitly says, I find no guilt in this man. But he succumbs to the pressure of the crowds and at 6 a.m. on Friday morning condemns Jesus to die by crucifixion. It takes three hours to get Jesus to the cross. 9 a.m. Jesus is nailed to the cross, says three things in the span of those first three hours from 9 a.m. to noon. He looks at uh, the soldiers and the crowd and says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. He looks at his mother and says, Mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And he looks at the thief on the cross and says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And then darkness rolls in, the judgment of God, the full, righteous, furious wrath of God against our sin rolls in at noon, and nobody says anything for three hours until the last moments of those three hours when Jesus says four things very quickly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit. He bows his head, he gives up his spirit to the Father's will and dies. That's where we find ourselves in John. Actually, turn there. John chapter 19. Jesus dies, and we need this in view as we talk about the resurrection because we have to look at the resurrection, number one, historically, and number two, theologically. That's what I want us to do this morning. We have to look at the resurrection, number one, historically, and number two, theologically. I want us to look at the narrative, look at the resurrection from a historical standpoint. Did this event actually happen? And then I want us to look at if it did actually happen, then what does that mean for us today? John chapter 19, verse 31. After Jesus bows his head and gives up his spirit, then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that was Sabbath as a high day. That Sabbath was the high Passover Sabbath. He asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear going right through his ribcage, right to his heart. And immediately blood and water came out. 
And he who has seen has testified. This is John. He was there. I saw it. I'm testifying. My testimony is true. And I know that I'm telling the truth so that you can believe. And then he says this unbelievable statement. Verse 36. These things came to pass to fulfill the scriptures. Not a bone of him will be broken. And again, another scripture. They will look on him whom they have pierced. I love those two prophecies in the Old Testament. Because this tells us Jesus had to die at a very specific time. He dies early enough that they have to pierce his side to double check and and make sure he's dead. He's died so quickly that they need to figure out, did he actually die? They go to break the legs of the other two robbers, the, the thieves that are on either side of Jesus, because this is so early on in the crucifixion. Remember, people take days to die when they're crucified. We're just hours into this crucifixion, so there's no way this guy is dead. So they have to double check. So they uh, shove that spear into his side and they pierce his heart. They look on him whom they have pierced. So he had to die early. But he couldn't have died any later because if he had died later, if he had died any later, then they would have come and they would have broken his legs. If he had still been alive when they came to break the legs of the thieves, then they would have seen he's still alive. We need to break his legs so they can kill him. But not one bone of his can be broken according to the Old Testament. So he has to die right in that perfect time period, not too early, not too late, so that both of those prophecies can be fulfilled. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He fulfills the, the full prophecy of the Old Testament. He satisfies the wrath of God, and he dies at exactly the right moment. Now, we, we've spoken a lot about the cross, about the crucifixion. The Romans made sure that crucifixion was cruel, lingering, public, and certifiable. It was a verifiable death. Nobody survived crucifixion. And this is important because there are theories that would claim that Jesus did not rise from the dead because he did not actually die. So I want to look at this historically, at some of these claims that people would make. So number one, there's a theory called the swoon theory, or you could put the fainting theory. This is uh, made popular by a German rationalist named Carl Venturini. And this man in the 1800s decided, well, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He was never actually dead. He came off the cross alive. He had just fainted on the cross. Just merely swooned because of blood loss and loss of fluids. So is this possible? Well, first of all, no, because of everything we talked about with crucifixions, cruel, lingering, public, verifiable. They don't take somebody off the cross unless they know they're dead. Case in point, they shove a spear into his side to make sure that he's dead. They're not going to take somebody off of the cross if they're still alive. Jesus died an indisputable, undeniable death. My old professor used to say they didn't want to just make sure that the criminal was dead. They wanted to make sure that they were good and dead. This was a public billboard for all the world to see. Don't do what this person did or else you're going to wind up like them. But let's, let's say for sake of the argument, hypothetically, Jesus did survive. This is impossible because a spear is going to break his heart in two. But let's say for the sake of imagination that he survived. We still have problems. Because Joseph and Nicodemus are going to come, they're going to take the body off the cross, and they're going to get that body ready for burial. You better believe that when they take the body off the cross, they make sure that Jesus is not still alive, right? They're not just going to say, well, let's assume he's dead and wrap his body up. They're going to check his pulse. They're going to make sure he's dead. Because if he's still alive, if there's just a tiny little heartbeat, they're going to make sure we revive him and bring him back from the dead. Bring him back to life here so that he's on the doorstep of death, but he won't meet it. But in fact, they do the opposite. After holding his lifeless body, confirming the worst had indeed happened, that their Savior, their Messiah, their Master, and their friend is dead, 
They wrap his body in linen wrappings. They wrap his body, and John tells us they put a hundred pounds of spices around his body. They would wrap his body probably seven different times. So they would wrap it up. They'd put spices in this kind of goopy paste over each linen wrapping. So they would wrap it. They'd put goop around him. They'd wrap, put goop, wrap, put goop, wrap, put goop. They'd just keep doing this. So it's just this massive amount of suffocating goop and linen wrapping. So let's say he didn't die. He would have died during the process of being prepared for burial. This is why John 11, when Lazarus is raised from the dead, Jesus says, hey, make sure you take the face covering off of his face because he's going to suffocate if you don't do that, and I have to perform the miracle all over again. So make sure you take this off of his face. Let's say, just hypothetically, Jesus survived being uh, wrapped in these linen wrappings. Let's say he goes in the tomb alive, just fainted, He's going to spend three days in a tomb with no food, no water, no ability to be uh, helped and nourished and brought back from the precipice of death. There's no way he survives. So the swoon theory, this idea that Jesus didn't actually die, is impossible. It's impossible. Even extra-biblical sources like Pliny the Younger and Suetonius and Josephus and the, the Jewish Talmud all describe Jesus being crucified under the reign of Pontius Pilate and nobody survives this kind of death. Okay, so maybe he did actually die, and he was buried, but maybe the disciples went to the wrong tomb, right? We see in Matthew 28 that the women go to the tomb, and they see that the stones rolled away. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Maybe they saw an empty tomb, but it's actually not the right tomb where Jesus was buried. It was just an empty tomb, and they didn't actually get the right tomb. Is that possible? Is that possible? Uh, no, for a number of reasons. Number one, Nicodemus and, jo and um, Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, people that we have biological, uh, biographical data on, we have an understanding of who they were, right? Joseph of Arimathea, he's on the Sanhedrin. We know where he lives. Joseph is a common name, but we know the city that he's from. We know his family. Nicodemus, we know him as well as a Pharisee. We know all these different people. We know who they were in a, in a bibliographical sense. We have so much data on who they were that you can go to them and you can say, hey, did you see where Jesus was buried? And they did. The Bible tells us that they went with the body to see it buried in the tomb. This is Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. It's not some random tomb somewhere. It's Joseph's tomb. So there's no way that he's not going to know where it is all of a sudden. Plus, there's so many other people. Listen to all of the people who are mentioned having seen Jesus buried, knowing where he was buried, and knowing where the empty tomb was. We have Joseph of Arimathea, we have Nicodemus, we have Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, Salome, Mary the wife of Clopas, a woman named Joanna, we have John himself, we have Pilate, we have a centurion, we have at least 16 Roman soldiers who are going to guard the tomb. We have Jewish leaders, including at least Caiaphas, but potentially the entire Sanhedrin. So at least 27 people know where this tomb is, watching Jesus be buried in this tomb. Potentially 95 people see this. There's no way that they're going to the wrong tomb. We have a 16-man uh, team of Roman soldiers that are guarding the tomb. We have a Roman wax seal placed on the tombstone, right? They seal the tomb. That's, they put that signet ring, ring seal over the entrance of the tomb. So you're not going to go to the wrong tomb. The disciples know where this tomb is, as the women had told them. 
What about the angel? You're telling me that God sends an angel to the wrong tomb? Like, uh uh-oh, I got the wrong address. My bad. He's not here because he's in a different tomb. Sorry. No, it's not possible that they went to the wrong tomb. Okay, fine. What about the disciples stole his body? This is a third theory. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The disciples stole his body. I have a couple problems with that one. Number one, as we see in the narrative, when the disciples go into the tomb, they see the, the linen wrappings perfectly laid out. Now, if I'm stealing something, that's not how I steal something, right? If I'm going to go steal the body of Jesus, I don't carefully undo the wrappings, take him out, and carefully put the wrappings back in their place as if it looked like he's still there. I don't do that. I just rip everything off. In fact, I'm probably not ripping anything off. I just pick up his body and leave. This isn't what you would do if you're stealing something. So that doesn't work. But also, you're telling me the disciples, last time we saw them, Garden of Gethsemane, they're running away from guards that are, for all intents and purposes, kind of like mall cops, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're freaking out. Their master is alive, and they're running away from mall cops. But now you're telling me that now that their master is dead, they have courage and energy and are able to go fight off basically the Navy SEALs of the day in these Roman guards. They wouldn't have courage to do that, much less have courage to die the terrible deaths that they died, knowing that they are purporting this lie. I mean, all they had to do is say, you know what, time out, we we actually stole his body, you don't need to kill us. What would they gain by going through with this lie? They're not gaining anything that most you know, cults or false religions that are trying to perpetuate things to gain. They're not gaining money. They're not gaining women. They're not gaining power or fame or influence. They're not gaining any of those things. So the charade would have been up. No, none of these theories work. Jesus died an indisputable death. His grave is a marked grave. You know where he's entombed, where he's buried. Therefore, since Jesus died an indisputable death and he was buried in an indisputable tomb, then when he rose from the dead, that is the greatest act in all of human history. This is why Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 4, Paul says that he was declared to be the son of God with power through the resurrection. He's declared to be the son of God. This is not a normal occurrence. Nobody can miss this. Confucius is dead and he's buried in a grave. Buddha is dead, he's buried in a tomb. Muhammad is dead and buried in Medina. And his followers travel there to visit his grave where his body is still buried. Christians alone follow a risen Savior, and all other religions follow rotting corpses. Christianity is the only religion where adherents go to the burial location of the one that they worship just to affirm that his remains aren't there. So historically, as the angel is sitting perched on top of that stone, which I'm sure he's really happy about. That's why he's sitting up there, right? When I wrestle with my children... When I sit on them, I have proven that I'm dominant over them, which won't happen for much longer, but I prove, look, I beat you. There's no way you can say you're you're winning here when I'm sitting on you. The angel wrestles that stone and says, I beat you. Like, you had to have a lot of people move you into place. You just need me to move you out. I win. The linen wrappings are there. His body's gone. The linen wrappings are there. The angel rolled away the tomb, not so that Jesus can come out, but so that the disciples can go in and see. He says, this is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. He died, he was buried, and he has risen, just like he said. So historically, number one, that's what's happening historically. Jesus died an indisputable death. 
and his body is gone. But what if he didn't rise from the dead? Does that change anything? In every other religion, by the way, this changes nothing. This changes nothing. If, if Buddha never even lived, that doesn't change Buddhism, because Buddhism is a philosophical way of living life. So you can still believe in Buddhism, even if Buddha never lived. The tenets of your philosophical way of living life still work, even if Buddha never existed. That's the way it is for every single religion. But if Jesus never existed, or if Jesus died and did not rise from the dead, everything changes. And I want to show that to you theologically in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we look historically. We look historically at the resurrection, the narrative of what's taking place. And now I want to look theologically with the few minutes that we have remaining. Paul is writing to a very Greek-minded culture that bought into this sort of dualism where spiritual is good and matter is bad. So they believed in the afterlife, but they didn't believe we were physically resurrected from the dead. That's why Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. I'm making known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died. Listen to what he says. He died for our sins. Amen and amen. And that he was buried. So he died for our sins according to the scriptures, just like prophesied. And that he was buried. That matters. He was buried. We know where his tomb is. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So Peter and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Most of them still remain alive. Some of them are asleep, but most of them are still alive. There's another view, another theory that would say, it's typically classified as the hallucination theory, that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead physically. We just, the the people that saw him, quote unquote, were hallucinating. They wanted to see him so badly that they just hallucinated about his resurrection. Well, maybe... I might go for that if, like, three people individually saw him and that was it. But we have individuals seeing him, and they all agree on what he looks like, by the way. That, that's, a, that's a staggering fact. If this is a hallucination, if Ricky and Donovan and I have a hallucination about what we think the resurrected Christ would look like, we're all going to have different uh, images in our mind of what he's going to look like. My Jesus might have long hair. Donovan's might have shorter hair. Mine might have a red sash, and Ricky's might have a blue sash. We know that Jesus rose from the dead with an appearance that was very strange, right? We would think that he'd be glowing this goldish hue with a halo around his head. But when Mary sees him, she thinks he's a gardener. He's not this profound, special, glowing figure. But also, 500, over 500 people at one time see the same thing. Now that tells me this isn't a hallucination. They're all seeing the same thing. And Paul tells us, go ask them. They're still alive. Go talk to them. Go talk to them. He appeared to James, verse 7. Last of all, he appeared to me. Drop down to verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection? So Jesus has been raised from the dead, physically, bodily resurrection. But you, Corinthian church, believe 
that he is not raised physically because there is no physical resurrection. It's only spiritual. Verse 13, this is his argument. He's going to show them how illogical their problem is. Let's assume that people don't rise from the dead physically. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead physically, then not even Christ has been raised. And now he's going to move into arguments about what happens if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. And I want to give you from Paul six consequences if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Six consequences in our lives today from the Apostle Paul if Christ has not been raised. So many people would think, well, if he hasn't been raised, it's okay. I still believe in him. I still follow his moral teaching, whatever that is. I follow his philosophical way of life, whatever that means. But brothers and sisters, Paul is going to give us some staggering realities of what would happen if Jesus was not raised from the dead. Number one, our preaching is in vain. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, verse 14 tells us our preaching is in vain. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Preaching, not the act of preaching, but the content of it, the gospel, that you can be saved and have eternal life in Christ that is a vain statement, vain, that's empty, it's meaningless, it's worthless, it has no substance, it's absolutely void. Without the resurrection, the cross is meaningless. There's no legitimate gospel. And if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, I'm not going to be doing what I'm doing right now. I'm going to stop being a pastor, I'm going to start preaching about Christ. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, you should stop doing what you're doing. Don't evangelize anybody because you're telling them to follow a dead person. Uh, don't try to make disciples of anybody. Just stop doing that. Our preaching is in vain. Number two, your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is in vain. This is verse 14, end of verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. It's vain. It's useless. It has no point. Drop down to verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Your faith is worthless. What you are believing in has no effect, has no power, and no point. Here's the reality, and you can mark this down. Either the tomb is empty or the gospel is empty. Either Christ is not in that tomb or the gospel has no power. You might believe, but your belief is worthless. The cross, and the, gospel, uh, the cross and the resurrection in the gospel go hand in hand. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, you know it. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. They go hand in hand. You need cross and you need resurrection. No amount of believing will help if the object of your faith is flawed. You can be as sincere as you want, but if the object of your faith is flawed, it still is powerless. It's worthless. Many of you know that I have some very strange and powerful allergies. Uh, pretty much allergic to everything in life. If I go over to my mom's house, for instance, and I hang out with her for, I don't know, five minutes. She has dogs, and I instantly start sneezing. I need like 70 Benadryl to curtail my allergic reactions. But let's say, as I have some allergic reaction to something, I say, you know what, I need some medication. I need some medication, and I believe that the medication will help me and will stop my allergic reaction. And I go for, I don't know, rat poison. 
here's some medicine, here's something that'll, that'll affect me, it'll help me. And I believe it with all sincerity that this will curtail the effects of the allergic reaction that I'm having. No amount of my faith will change what that rat poison is going to do to my body. It's not going to save me. It's not going to heal me. No matter how sincere I am in my belief that it will help me, it's not going to help. So Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, you might believe in this Jesus, but if he's not been raised, then no amount of your sincerity of your faith will save you. It's powerless. Number three, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, verse 15, we are liars. So our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain, and we are liars. This is verse 15. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses. We're liars of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ from the dead, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So I'm claiming, if I say that Jesus was raised from the dead and he wasn't, I'm claiming that God does something that he doesn't do. I'm lying on God's behalf. The, the Greek word, we are found. Moreover, we are even found to be. We are found. That's one Greek word. We are found to be. It means to be discovering someone's true character. We have, found, we have been found out to be liars. Our true nature has been revealed. Either we are true in what we're saying or we're lying. There's no middle ground. And we're lying against God because we're, we're speaking in contradiction to what God has clearly said. So if Christ hasn't been raised, you can't trust the Apostle Paul. You can't trust the Apostles. You can't trust the Old Testament. You can't even trust Jesus himself. You remember in John chapter 2, verses 18 through 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple, my body, and in three days I will raise it back. I'll build it back up. So you can't trust anybody. We're all liars. Number four, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. So number one, you're preaching, my preaching, our preaching of the gospel is in vain. Number two, our faith is in vain. Number three, we're liars. And number four, our, our sins still exist. We are still in our sins. This is in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worse, worthless and you are still in your sins. Sin's power is unbroken. Death is proven to be stronger than God. Sin is a twofold problem for us, by the way. It has a penalty that we can't pay and has a power that we can't overcome. The penalty is death. It's physical death, yes. It's spiritual death as well. And the power also is death. And the final power that sin has over us is eternal death. So since sin's penalty is death and Jesus died for that penalty, if he conquers it, then we're free. If he's still dead, then we're still going to die in our sins forever without any reprieve, without any possibility of being freed. If Jesus stays dead, sin's power is not overcome. And therefore, the penalty is still being paid, and thus the payment has not been fully made. Jesus has to rise from the dead in order to fully pay the penalty for and overcome the power of sin. So if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, we're still under condemnation. We're still under condemnation. Yeah, sure, he died. And he said, it is finished. But the father said, actually, it's not. And he's still lying there in a tomb and spiritually bearing the full wrath of God. If Jesus drowned in the waters of death, then we are going to drown as well. Number five, a fifth consequence. 
those who have fallen asleep, or you can put the word died, in Christ have perished. This is verse 18. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 18, Paul says it. Then, since you're still in your sins, those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's not just they died. That's they are still dead in their sins. Not just physically dying, but spiritually in hell forever. Of course, the, the then is the consequence in verse 18. Then, because we're still in our sins, then we cannot be forgiven and go to heaven. We're going to be in hell for all of eternity. Therefore, verse 19, a sixth and final consequence. If Christ has not been raised, number one, our preaching is in vain. Number two, our faith is in vain. Number three, we are liars. Number four, we're still in our sins. Number five, those who have died in Christ have perished eternally. They are in hell. And finally, number six, verse 19, we are of all men most to be pitied. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, you and I are living a life that absolutely makes no sense. We should be pitied. The life that we are choosing is foolish. It's idiotic. It's pitiable. Because Jesus won't be returning. History has no goal or purpose. This life is all there is. So we're living for a life that doesn't exist. We're claiming a gospel that doesn't bring freedom. We're lying. And therefore, we're living a life that should be pitied. Brothers and sisters, the reality is, if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, nothing matters. Nothing matters. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, nothing matters. Just live however you want to live. But, verse 20, but now Christ has been raised. Oh, he has been raised. He is alive. That tomb is empty. And so since Jesus has been raised, nothing else matters. If Jesus hasn't been raised, nothing matters. But if Jesus has been raised, and he has, then nothing else matters other than this. A man who claimed that after he died, he would raise himself from the dead, and he did it? There is nothing else in the world to dwell on and to, to point your affections to than Christ. He and he alone deserves our affections, our praise, our adoration, our focus, our attention. It's a matter of truth. Paul uses the present uh, a perfect tense here. Christ has been raised from the dead. He rose at a moment in the past, and forever that moment pertains to our history. It, it pertains to our lives. It pertains to everything that we do. My favorite resurrection quote says this, the corpse of Jesus just lay there in the silence of that cave. Just close your eyes and picture these things. Go back. Feel as if Christ had been raised yesterday. Feel as if you're there on Saturday in the upper room knowing that Jesus in a bloodied mess of just hamburger meat of a body is in a tomb never to come out of that tomb ever again. The corpse of Jesus is just lying there in the silence of that cave. By all appearances, it had been tested and tried and found wanting. If you had been there to pull open his bruised eyelids, matted together with mottled blood, you would have looked into blank 
holes. If you had lifted his arm, you would have felt no resistance. You would have only heard a thud as it hit the table when you let it go. You would have walked away from that morbid scene, muttering to yourself, the wages of sin is death. But somewhere before dawn, on a Sunday morning, a spike-torn hand twitched. A blood-crusted eyelid opened. The breath of God came blowing into that cave, and a new creature flashed into reality. God was not simply delivering Jesus, and with him all of us from death. He was also vindicating Jesus, and with him all of us as well. By resurrecting Jesus from the dead, God was reaffirming what he had said over the Jordan waters. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He was declaring Jesus to be the son of God in power. Jesus Christ is alive. So what does that mean for you and for me? We can flip everything that Paul said. All of those six consequences, we can flip them on their head. Number one. Since Jesus has been raised, our preaching is not in vain. Since Jesus has been raised, our ministry is effective. We've seen that. We've had the privilege of baptizing people out here on the grass. We've brought in new members to our church. We've seen marriages grow. We've seen people that were unreconciled, not even wanting to talk to each other, come to a place of reconciliation, not because of anything we do, but because of the power of the gospel. We've seen people grow their affections for Christ. We've seen people grow their affections for one another and love one another. We've seen sin dealt with and killed. That's not because of anything we could do. That's because Christ is alive. Number two, our faith is not in vain. Our faith produces forgiveness. It produces growth and godliness. It produces a whole host of amazing blood-bought promises. Number three, we are speaking accurately on behalf of God. There is somebody who is absolutely trustworthy for you. The preaching of God's word is true. Jesus lives. There are no skeletons in God's closet. Number four, we're forgiven. We're not still in our sins. This is the need and the longing of every human heart and the foundation of every other blessing that we receive from God. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, God cannot, and here we speak with reverence, the everlasting God cannot reject a sinner who pleads the blood of Christ. For if he did so, it would be to deny himself that he can never revoke that divine acceptance of the resurrection. And if thou goest to, to God, my hearer, pleading simply and only the blood of him who did hang upon the tree, God must ungod himself before he can reject you or reject that blood. Bruce Ware says, the single most glorious reality about the resurrection of Christ is what it demonstrated. The horrific penalty of our sin forgiven fully and the crushing power of sin conquered completely. These are the realities demonstrated and proven when Christ walks out of that tomb alive from the dead. You're forgiven, brothers and sisters. You are forgiven. Christ is alive. And he declares, it is finished. You are not guilty. You are forgiven. Number five, those who have died in Christ have not perished. They're alive. They're in glory and joy. Death is not a wall. It's a door. It's not the end. It's the means to ever, everlasting and eternal life. Number six, we are of all men most to be envied. 
because Christ has been raised, we are living the best life possible. We have a hope that can never be destroyed. We have a joy that can be never taken away. We can have assurance that can never be removed. Hidden in these verses are incentives for us to believe. All of us, at our best and highest moments, have dreamed of living a life that is not self-indulgent, but sacrificially loving. And the resurrection makes that possible. Can I just ask you, are you living a life that just looks idiotic if there is no resurrection? That's what we should do. Luke chapter 14, verse 13 says, when you give a reception, when you give a party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed since they don't have the means to repay you because you'll be paid back at the resurrection. Live in such a way where your life makes no sense if there is no heaven. It makes no sense. You're giving money to help people know Jesus and go to heaven. If there is no heaven, that makes no sense. Keep all your money and live for yourself. What do your choices look like? Are they resurrection-empowered choices? Are they risky choices for the gospel? Are they imprudent choices if there is no resurrection? They should be. Brothers and sisters, live for what matters. Live for what matters. Some of you should stop doing certain things and start doing things that matter for all of eternity. Some of you should stop doing things that are temporal, finite, and have zero purpose in eternal things. So, how do we apply all of this? Go to verse 58 of chapter 15. I mean, there's so much here, but just to end our time this morning, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This is how we are to apply it. Because Christ has been raised, you have something to live for that makes an eternal difference. Live for that. You should see every single person in your world as somebody who is a soul, either going to hell or heaven. And you should make it your greatest goal in life to treasure Christ and help others treasure him as well. That's, that's our mission as a church, to magnify God, to spread a passion for his glory by shepherding people to love Christ more than anything in this world. To go into the world and make disciples of our resurrected Savior. One pastor says it this way. After a criminal does his time in jail and fully satisfies the sentence, the law has no more claim on him, and he walks out free. Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty of our sins, and that was an infinite sentence. But he must have satisfied it fully, because on Easter Sunday, he walked out free. The resurrection was God's way of stamping, paid in full, right across all of human history, so that no one could ever miss it. Brothers and sisters, this is the most important week in all of human history, and this is the most important day in all of human history, that our Savior, crucified and buried, is not dead, but is alive and reigning and ruling in power and authority. And he deserves all the praise, all the glory, and all of our affections, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, we thank you so much for our brief survey through this most amazing week. This beautiful, beautiful, powerful, 
Every moment is just filled with majesty from the triumphal entry all the way to the resurrection. But God, none of it means anything if Christ has not been raised. None of it matters if Jesus is not alive. And that's why we end our time in the Passion Week by looking at this staggering reality. A man dying an indisputable death has risen from the dead, an indisputable resurrection. And so, God, we worship. Just as we prayed before, we began our time in your word together. Just as we prayed, we want to grab hold of Christ and worship him. God, I pray that we would have done that this morning as we have listened to your word preached and grappled with the realities of what your word says. And God, I pray we would do it now as we worship you through song that we would grab hold of Christ, our resurrected Savior, and worship him together. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, please stand with us. We're going to sing about the things we just heard.